Gresham College presents Japanese Management Practice in the UK by Dr. Malcolm Trevor. Uh, what I wanted to do today was to talk about four or five main subjects. Uh, Japanese companies in the UK in the light of quality control, first of all. Uh, secondly, the question, or if you like, the problems of the relations between local manufacturers of components and the main Japanese assemblers or manufacturers that they are supplying, with some comparison between the situation in Britain and the situation in Japan. Uh, thirdly, industrial relations and new management systems, in particular in some of these companies like Toshiba, like Hitachi, and of course like quite recently Nissan that we've been hearing so much about, and lastly, to try and think, what are the implications of all these things for us? Do they really have something to tell us, or are these just rather interesting, but uh, perhaps slightly eccentric examples? And uh, at the end, in that light, I'd like to consider really the question of organizational change, and what the relevance of all these things, and many of them are indeed good things, of course, what is the relevance of all these good things for British managers, or indeed for ourselves? Um, on the whole, I've not been a great one for visual aids and gimmicks, but uh, <coughs> I did actually bring one, well, actually I've got two, so let me show you the first one. On one of my visits to Japan, I got this little notebook, as you see, from a company which is actually over here, Uasa Battery Company, which is in Wales. Um, in fact, it's the second Japanese company in Britain to win the Queen's Award for exports. Sony was the first, and I think it was earlier this year, in fact, that Yuasa was the second, and they were very pleased about that. Um, the last visit but one that I made to Japan when I was going around discussing quality control with people uh, this was one of many companies that was indeed very helpful, and they gave me this little thing. And it seems to me it's quite symptomatic of quite a number of things that we hear. Uh, this would be given to every employee of UASA. The purpose, and uh, I'm sure all of us who say are on the wrong side of the cent half century and whose memories perhaps are not quite as good as they used to be or should be, uh, we'll take the point on board that when you have a good idea, you write it down. So on each page, what you have, it says at the, part, at the top, uh, department, name, and then this thing is the problem, uh, this thing is the solution that you propose, and that one is the result. So all the time, uh, everybody, including <coughs> particularly, of course, ordinary shop floor employees, uh, have the job of thinking how the work uh, can be improved, how things can be made more efficient. Uh, not merely how quality can be improved, but how economies can be made in the manufacturing process, uh, how energy can be saved, uh, rather obvious things, safety and so forth. Now it seems to me that uh, quality control is one of the things one of several things, in fact, that a certain amount of mythology has grown up about, which I think leads people to interpret it sometime in a rather misguided way. And I also think that it's very useful for us if we go back 
and look at how quality control was introduced into Japan and indeed why was it introduced. Um, again, those of us, and looking around the room I think there are several, uh, those of us who are on the wrong side of the half century, over 50 years old, uh, we will remember that before the war there were not really very many Japanese products for sale in this country at all. I can just about remember a few toys, I think that's about the only thing, and uh, little flowers, you know, a little thing that you put in a glass like that and then it went down to the bottom and a very pretty little thing came up but it couldn't possibly be described as a sort of solid industrial product. It was not like uh, Japanese cars and consumer electronics. These things which have become a byword for quality and reliability and which are selling, in fact, very largely on those advantages. Um, after the war, of course, Japanese industry was in a very poor state. Uh, as with ourselves, it became, as they say, necessary to export or die. And as we know, to sometimes bitter experience, the only way that one can export things is, as the government is constantly telling us, uh, make goods which are attractive enough, with good enough quality and at clean enough prices, etc., that foreign buyers are actually going to shell out good money for and the Japanese didn't really feel that most of their pre-war products would have uh, met that demand at all. So it was a question of absolute necessity of improving the quality. Uh, improving quality, first of all, in a very specific and product-related sense. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, where did the idea of quality control come from? Uh, it wasn't actually invented in Japan. Uh, I was quite surprised, actually, when I looked into it to find really how old the idea is. Uh, I got out from the British Library the other day the sort of seminal work by a certain Dr. Schuhart of the Bell Laboratories, who was the originator of statistical quality control as long ago as 1931. So it has been around for a long time. Uh, in 1969, the whole thing was taken a step further by somebody called Feigenbaum, also in the USA, of course, uh, who put forward his idea of total quality control. So initially, what we're talking about is a very specific technical means of improving the measuring and improving the quality of products. Uh, after the war, and again, I would suggest that uh, if we look at what the Japanese were doing, that there are very useful ideas that we could pick up. Uh, after the war, in 1946 already, there was a thing founded called JUSE, Japan Union of Scientists and Engineers. Uh, this is an independent body, be it noted, not a government body, but an independent body, uh, which has been the main promoter pushing all the ideas of quality control. In 1949, they established a quality control research group. Uh, they were the people who invited all these American gurus, like Professor Deming and Professor Duran and so on, uh, to Japan. Uh, they were the ones behind the institution of the Deming Prize in Japan, uh, either for very high quality products or for ideas and improvements in the process of quality control. Uh, they are the ones who have pushed the programs on the radio and the magazines and all these things. And once again, 
uh, it seems to me highly relevant that these things, although obviously uh, they fitted in very much with what the government had in mind and what they would have liked to have seen happen, uh, nevertheless these were private initiatives undertaken by private bodies. Uh, they were not just sitting around waiting for the government to help them or for the government to do something. Uh, after all, what did the government know about quality control? Um, the original impetus, however, came from the American Supreme Headquarters, SCAP, in about 1949. Uh, it came in a very interesting way. The communication system in Japan had been really destroyed. Uh, the Americans were very keen to get this functioning again properly. Uh, to their horror, they discovered that all these very blue-chip companies, whose names now one wouldn't mention because now they are the firms actually exporting to us uh, televisions and VTRs and video cameras and goodness knows what else, uh, it's very interesting if you read what the American engineers who were attached to SCAP said that uh, these firms, they produced goods which were very poor quality, the reject rates were very high, uh, they didn't really seem to have much idea of uh, how to run a business or even basic sort of business and management procedures, very, very critical indeed. And so in 1949, uh, the Americans ran a thing which was called the CCS course, Civil Communications Section. And this was beamed initially at the Japanese electrical manufacturers. Uh, people like, for instance, uh, Sumitomo Electric, NEC, Matsushita, and so on. Uh, the course was only run twice. It was attended both times by about 30 senior Japanese managers from these companies. And uh, it had a very dramatic effect on them. It's almost like reading some sort of uh, revivalist story. And I have talked to some very old and experienced managers in Japan who told me about this, you know, uh, the way that it all hit them, you know. And uh, some of them, they wrote very emotional things like, you know, when we heard this, it was like a revelation. It was like the scales falling from our eyes. And um, we wanted to go and set people afire with this uh, new doctrine. And that was really how it happened. They went back to the companies, uh, taught people in their own companies, and then because of the intense competitiveness, etc., in Japan, uh, the movement gradually, I think, spread throughout Japanese industry. And uh, I also discovered some other very interesting and, in a way, rather ironic things that, uh, of course, all these great gurus like Deming and Duran and the people on the CCS course, uh, they were all American. But there is even one uh, English person, a professor, in fact, from London University, a certain uh, Professor R.A. Fisher, uh, who, in fact, was an agricultural economist and I was told more than once that he was very famous in Japan. Now, to my shame, although I've had quite a lot to do with London University, obviously, I, I must admit I'd never heard of him in my life. So this was not the first thing that I had that I learned, actually, and I've learned things about marketing, too, uh, which have actually started in this country. They have then been picked up in Japan, uh, applied in Japan, and then people think, gosh, what is this wonderful idea that they have in Japan? And then you discover that there are some of these people who are actually not a thousand miles from home. So it was really quite interesting. 
Anyway, the thing that Fisher was famous for was what they call the method of designing an experiment. Uh, the point being that when you're dealing with all sorts of different industries, uh, you can't apply one sort of experiment in a rigid manner to chemicals, electronics, uh, machines, rolling stock and so on, but you have to look at each problem individually. Therefore, you need a method for designing an experiment. And I actually tried this out on a number of Japanese managers after I'd heard from them originally about Fisher. Then I asked other Japanese managers, um, do you know R.A. Fisher? And in some cases it would come up just like that. Oh yes, method of designing an experiment. The answer would come up quite pat like that. Um, however, I think one of the most uh, praiseworthy ways in which this whole idea of quality control was developed in Japan, and I think there's not much doubt that it has really been taken further in Japan than anywhere else, uh, was that if you started merely with quality control as a technical means, uh, the Japanese, from what I understand, experimented in ways in which you could actually apply this in an organization. And, of course, the Japanese organizations were not actually American organizations. Uh, they were not staffed by Americans. The people did not actually think like Americans. But still, they wanted to apply these methods, which obviously in America had been highly effective. And I think there again, there are quite important implications for us. Uh, in other words, the important thing is to get at the actual benefits of what this type of program is capable of producing and not to worry too much about whether you're following it uh, in some so-called sort of pure form according to the book or something like that. So uh, starting with the idea of statistical quality control, which is a very technical means based on mathematics, it's a thing that engineers would understand very well. Uh, I think really before Feigenbaum had come along actually with his book, the Japanese were experimenting far more with what you might call socio-technical means. In other words, here is a good idea, we want to improve the quality of the products, but how do we do it in our own organizations? How do we adapt or how do we use these ideas so that they function in a Japanese context? And it seems to me that if we're looking at what the Japanese companies have done, and if managers say, you know, well, we also like Jaguar or like Rolls-Royce engines or like Wedgwood or May and Baker or uh, Eurotherm and all these other companies in Britain who have been doing it, uh, obviously British companies are not quite like Japanese companies, but basically we want to achieve the same aims and we have something there which seems to be a good method, uh, how do we adopt it or how do we adapt it? And it seems again to me that this is um, also one of the roots of one of the problems in understanding that uh, some people seem to think of quality control really only as a purely technical means Others who see very much the sort of human relations side of it, they see it, uh, I think, too much as a way of solving human relations problems, uh, motivational problems, industrial relations problems. Uh, there is a certain mythology 
for instance, this is something that has worked very well in Japan. So some people would say, well, of course it works in Japan because companies in Japan are special and there are all sorts of special work ethics and beliefs and loyalty and all the rest of it. And our situation here is different, so therefore they won't work here. That seems to me a little bit too pat and too simple. Uh, it's getting towards some of these arguments about culture, which um, I'd like to come back to rather briefly later. Maybe we could discuss them in a bit more detail afterwards. But I do find it slightly worrying that culture is a word that tends to be used very loosely. Um, whether you look at it at the national level, so-called, or whether you look at it at the organizational level, uh, in many cases it's not really clear what it means. And if it is true, of course, that culture is so unique, uh, then, of course, it really means that you can't adapt things from anybody else. But then the whole lesson, it seems to me, of the way that Japanese companies have used quality control is that they have actually taken something which came from a very different society, uh, applied it very effectively and with great commitment and great thought, and further refined it and developed it so that it does actually now have a rather broader meaning. And there are lots of things that one could quote. For instance, um, if you look at actual data on companies in Japan, uh, what quality circles are actually doing, quality itself is no longer the main <coughs> item. Uh, maybe at the beginning, when you first start doing it, then maybe quality actually is the, the main item because you have to get that better. Um, what about Japanese companies over here? How far are they applying these things? I think it's a slightly different situation because obviously if you have uh, very large companies, the Toshibas and the NECs and Hitachis in Japan, with a very stable workforce, then comparatively speaking, it is fairly easy to organize and to get a program like that going and to keep it going. Uh, over here, where most of the Japanese manufacturers have not been so long, where the companies on the whole are smaller, where labor probably is more mobile, and where the idea probably is quite new anyway. Uh, it is still perhaps rather the early stage. So I don't think that you actually find very many Japanese companies in the UK or elsewhere in Europe that do have circles. There certainly there are some. Uh, some of them may have the same thing, but they may call it by a different name. Um, for instance, at one company they introduced what they called improvement groups. And there was actually a reason for that, that the Japanese managing director, he was a little bit nervous because uh, some people had taken up this idea of uh, QC circles in a rather gimmicky way. You know, this was a sort of panacea that uh, circles are going to solve all your problems. They're going to make all the products wonderful. They're going to motivate everybody. Everybody's going to be happy. There will be no more technical or organizational problems. And unfortunately, as we know from the experience with British companies, and maybe also with some companies in Japan, if the truth were known, uh, life is seldom that simple. In other words, there have been attempts in some companies here, apart from the ones that I mentioned, 
to introduce circles, they haven't, for one reason or another, succeeded very well. Or in some cases, they might be introduced, and then there is a problem of keeping up the momentum and keeping them going. And if they don't succeed very well, then there's always the danger, of course, that the whole concept of QC and QC circles is really written off. People say, oh, well, you know, that's just the sort of flavor of the month. That was the latest management gimmick. Uh, we had this experience. That proves it's all wrong. You must go on to something else. Then you start looking for another panacea. I think that is very, very dangerous. Um, not only myself, I think, because if you read all these very mainline writers like Peter Drucker, he is always, in fact, warning managers not to look for panaceas and ideal solutions. Uh, on the other hand, you can find quite a lot of Japanese companies in Britain where the emphasis on quality is extremely strong. Uh, for instance, one engineering company that I have been to, they're making precision items, so of course quality is extremely important. Everybody has been given the idea that the whole prosperity of the company and therefore the security of their jobs and their prospects really depends on being able to send, sell good quality products. And everybody is taught about doing their own quality checks. These are just ordinary operators on the line. So already you see that there is a very big difference from the old sort of system uh, if we take the idea of the old sort of system as being the extreme Tayloristic idea, in other words, under the old system, uh, as has been pointed out in many factories, the responsibility for quality does not rest with ordinary operators. So you have them making washing <coughs> machines or television sets or motorbikes, whatever it is. The thing is going down the line. They can see that there are things wrong, but they don't do anything about it because, in the great phrase, that's not my job. Uh, the person whose job it is, of course, is the quality inspector. That is his job. That is what he is paid for. And, of course, thereby hangs all the sort of tale of the industrial relations implications. Uh, he's paid for that. So if I'm going to do something more, then I should be paid more. Otherwise, I don't want more responsibility. So that is the sort of old idea, if we put it very simply, the bad old idea. And I think that it's true that from what I've seen of Japanese manufacturers in this country that all of them really have been making very great efforts uh, to get right away from that idea. Uh, both, as we were saying earlier, in a technical sense and also in an organizational sense. So in that sort of factory, like the one that I'm thinking of, uh, every employee is responsible for quality and you don't have it demarcated so that you only have quality inspectors. Uh, that also means, as I think one can so soon understand, uh, that also really presupposes flexibility, which is another very big issue for Japanese employers in this country. Uh, after all, under the old demarcated system, you know, I have my job description, uh, or at least in theory I, I have it, in theory it should be quite clear, this is what I do, I don't do that, I'm responsible for this, not that, I stick to my area, you stick to yours, and that's the end of the story, there's nothing more to be said. Uh, I could tell you something uh, 
I think in a way even more unusual about that company, which is that the, um, the personnel manager there as well, the British personnel manager that is, he had actually worked on the line for six months. Now that, that is, I think, very unusual. I don't think you'd find too many British companies where something like that has happened. Uh, I think of another company, this time in the chemical industry. Uh, again, the same sort of approach. And we've seen it very clearly, of course, recently with Nissan, as we know. This was one of the main issues in the discussion about Nissan. Uh, particularly striking, I suppose, in an industry like the motor industry, which has been plagued, as we know, very severely since the war, by all sorts of things to do with demarcation and multi-union situations. Uh, very difficult to get that sort of thing to work. So Nissan, of course, has gone for the strategy, as we know, of having a single union agreement and all ordinary employees divided only into two categories. Uh, one is technician and the other one is motor manufacturer. And briefly, the idea is, of course, that anybody uh, should do anything that is required, that they should not put a narrow limit on the job. And that actually should apply to all the people in the organization, not merely the shop floor operators, but to people in the office. And last but not least, of course, to managers. And I've had some quite interesting uh, conversations with Japanese managers on these points because although many of them anticipate, it seems to me, difficulties with blue-collar workers and maybe unions, and especially perhaps militant unions, about demarcation and that sort of thing, they rather tend to assume, it seems to me, that they won't have that sort of problem with managers. And uh, sometimes they have a rather rude awakening because they find rarely that, in fact, uh, managers who are quite strongly oriented towards their own career, their own speciality, their own labor, their own market in the labor, their own value in the labor market, which is the thing, of course, that applies to all of us. This is a matter of life and death to us, actually. Um, they then find that it, that it isn't actually the same. So then the problem is how to deal with all those questions, and especially managers, I would think, being really much more individualistic on the whole than blue-collar workers. Anyway, at the chemical company, again, they have done the same thing. Uh, either they would not have any job descriptions at all, or else they would have only a very general one, which I suppose to many local people would really be tantamount actually to not having a proper job description. So you could get a situation where people would actually ask and say, look, you know, we're not happy uh, because we're not clear what we are supposed to do. So you get really a, I won't say clash, but you certainly get a discrepancy between very definitely two different approaches to organization, two different theories of organization. Um, our sort of Anglo-American model where you get efficiency by chopping everything up so that it is all clear. And the Japanese thing, which is more that the, I think the sum total, the effectiveness of the sum total of the organization is considerably greater than its individual parts. And where if you actually tie people down, if you tried to tie people down to one particular thing, uh, you would actually be losing things because you would be prejudging in advance how a problem was to be approached. 
And it seems to me that that is actually quite a valid point. Anyway, in the chemical company, the thing that they were doing there was exactly the same. Uh, job flexibility, uh, plus all the usual things about wearing uniform and having the one status canteen and all these other things that we hear a lot about. And operators doing their own quality checks. And there was one other thing there which was... Uh, again I think rather suggestive of how people sometimes really quite misunderstand perhaps what quality control and quality circles are all about. I actually asked the managing director, the British managing director uh, of this company, do you have any quality circles? And he said yes we have a quality circle. I said okay well who is in it? And he said uh, managers and supervisors so I didn't dare say anything more but that, of course, is a travesty. The whole idea is that it should be based, really, on the involvement of shop floor workers and supervisors, with, of course, the backup of the experts. Uh, it's terribly difficult sometimes uh, not to go from sort of one extreme uh, of misunderstanding of the quality movement to another. There are some, it seems to me, rather idealistic people uh, who seem to think that quality circles are almost like some sort of, uh, you know, to use one of these dreadful <coughs> cliches nowadays, uh, workers' control or something like that. I don't think it's anything like that at all. Uh, quality control and all that was not introduced by workers in Japan. It was introduced by management. And management has guided it all along. Uh, certainly it has involved everybody and it's been very sort of de democratic, etc., etc., in that way. But it's also a very realistic idea, and uh, although in one sense the people on the shop floor who are doing the job, or in the office for that matter, uh, by definition know best what it is about, because after all they are doing it every day, uh, it doesn't necessarily mean that they have great technical expertise in that field. And certainly going around plants in Japan it became very clear that's the QC movement, yes that is one thing, but behind it there is another thing which is called QA, quality assurance. And in the quality assurance departments you would find all the very high-powered and qualified engineers who are there to back up the people on the shop floor with proper expertise and expert knowledge and uh, all the technical details etc. as and when necessary but to do it in a very tactful way so as not to discourage and demotivate the people on the shop floor. So there again it seems to me that it would be a very serious mistake uh, not to look at that very professional backup that there is available. And uh, <coughs> while we're on the uh, subject of uh, visual aids, another thing that I did was to collect written materials and posters from factories in Japan when I went round. Uh, in the end I really almost had to get, give up this idea because I was collecting so much I really couldn't carry it. And a lot of it I had to send back. But I think if you look at this uh, you may find that this is really quite familiar. It doesn't seem terribly inscrutable to me. It seems frankly pretty realistic. Cost down. <coughs> So I think all the people who are being sort of ultra-idealistic and saying, you know, well, this is like some sort of industrial democracy or something, I think, again, really, they have taken the thing altogether a little bit too far. 
at the company that is uh, that has been experimenting with the improvement groups, which seem to me, frankly, really to be quality circles, but by another name, uh, they had certainly been making very great efforts, as you would find in Japan, uh, to involve people at the work team level. And when I went to the plant, uh, they were very pleased to show me all these things on the wall. Uh, just like in Japan, all the problems that the groups had been set, all the graphs where they were, the reject rates and so on. But there again, uh, behind that, there was very strong technical backup. This was actually an electronics factory. And um, I think this was the first one that I had ever seen where on the lines where they were inserting components at the end, uh, they had a visual display unit. And this would pick up faults immediately. And then if there was a fault, it could be immediately traced back to the person who had made it and then somebody, of course, would go to that person and point out, you know, what the problem was and what they would, uh, what they should be watching. <coughs> so it was, an, I think, a very, very efficient system indeed. Uh, again, at this uh, other company here, you asked a battery company. This is a company uh, which maybe actually has been evolving new management methods. It's using a kind of synthesis of Japanese and Western methods. Uh, there's a, I think, in fact, if you go around, you can find a lot of variation between the different firms, uh, not merely because they might be in different industries, but even because of such simple things as the different experience and the personalities of the Japanese managers who are managing them. Um, after all, it's only natural that a Japanese manager who is on his third tour in the UK and has really become very familiar with things uh, he will be more confident and he probably has more definite ideas than somebody, as sometimes happens, who comes out for the first time as, and is in charge of a new plant. And this was actually the case at Uasa, although it hasn't in any way had any bad effect. But one thing that it has meant is that they have been uh, designing their own new sorts of management systems. And uh, they certainly do uh, have a very complete range of circle activities. Uh, they've even had them sort of uh, designing systems for the plant and involving people right from the ground upwards. And uh, even such rather unusual things, which you wouldn't find, I think, in Japan itself, at least so I was told there uh, by the Japanese managing director, that every day one of the things they do is that all of them, uh, if they're not actually answering the phone or something like that, uh, all of them, the managers, supervisors, and uh, workers in the place, uh, they go round and they tidy up and they clean up the place. Uh, even in Japan, I'm told that would be really quite unusual. So that is a new sort of synthesis. Uh, there again, I think that all these things uh, do have quite a lot to teach us. Uh, if we come to the last point I mentioned about organizational change, it seems to me that these are really quite good examples, in fact, of, if you like, organizational change or maybe innovation. Uh, okay, most of them are, in effect, on greenfield sites. And that is, of course, as we know, that is much easier than when you're trying to reform a company which is already in existence. 
particularly if you have certain snags like uh, firms like BL with a very large number of unions, different work sites, uh, very old entrenched uh, custom and practice, not to mention all the other disabilities, of course, which they faced. So I think that this is one area in which the influx of, at any rate, some Japanese management practices or ideas is actually having quite an effect. Uh, let's leave that particular topic there and perhaps come back and discuss more things about it later. Um, the second thing I wanted to talk about, and I think I'll absolutely have to uh, uh, leave a lot of these uh, quotes here, maybe we'll deal with some of them later, the question of uh, components. Again, it seems to me desirable that if we're looking at Japanese organizations in the UK, particularly manufacturing, that we should try and get a holistic view of what they are doing. In other words, not to be blinded so much by, for instance, having a single status canteen or having uh, single status employment conditions or having quality circles. Uh, what about the actual task, the things that they are making? What about things like local content? which, as we saw in the Nissan case, of course, was the thing that was a lot of hard bargaining about. Um, I think I, I obviously haven't time to read out all these things, but there are quite a lot of examples now that one gets in information. Uh, let's look at one. This, for, this, for instance, is a recent one about Nissan. Uh, in July, they had 40% local content. Uh, then there's to be a two-phase, yes, sorry, phase two <coughs> expansion, which has already been really announced to all intents and purposes, I think, uh, targeted at 60% plus local content, and also mentioning that in the other Japanese venture that there is in the motor industry, the BL-Honda collaboration, that according to this, the Rover Group already have an average 80% local parts content level. And if we look at the other main Japanese industry in this country, electronics, uh, there again, as you know, there is the whole question of the EEC regulations about content. In other words, if you have 40% or whatever it is, or above that of local content, then the VTRs that you make over here, they count as European con uh, products and can be freely sold in the EC. So there is actually a very strong uh, incentive for Japanese companies for commercial reasons, in fact, to increase local content. Uh, as we know, there has been a lot of political pressure. Uh, if you look at the technical side, then obviously, uh, whether you're talking about cars or whether you're talking about television sets or VTRs, um, there are quite sound commercial reasons again why it is good sense to at any rate get some components locally uh, for instance if you look at televisions obviously there's no sense in bringing big and bulky and heavy things like cases and so on from Japan uh, there's no advantage in getting plastic parts from there if you can get the right things locally uh, the things that you probably would bring would be the things that are very high quality, are cheap to air freight, uh, and have been designed anyway to be used in the TVs or VTRs, the integrated circuits and other electronic components. Um, 
very briefly, some of you may know that uh, there have been two reports in English about Japanese manufacturing companies in Europe. Uh, one produced last year, the, one, the other one I think about 1983. Uh, both of them highlighted two particular problems from the point of Japanese management in Europe. Uh, not only in this country, although uh, in some cases particularly here. One, of course, was industrial relations, which perhaps really haven't turned out to be anything like as bad as people had feared. And uh, the other one was uh, what they call here problems in the local procurement of parts and supplies. Um, again, I'm not going to have time to read out all these uh, figures about the numbers of companies that are actually taking active steps to increase their local procurement. Let's see some of the criticisms. Uh, now, this is Jetro speaking. Uh, Japanese affiliates inevitably tend to have problems with local manufacturers of parts and supplies insofar as the delivery dates, quality, and delivery terms of parts and supplies are concerned. There is, without question, a large difference between the strictness of delivery dates, etc., as applied to Japanese manufacturers of parts and supplies compared with those as applies to local manufacturers. Uh, 68 of 100 responding companies indicated that they had to return goods due to the above problems. Um, if we try and think where the UK is in relation to other countries, we are somewhere in the middle. In other words, we are better, so Jetro says, than Italy and Ireland, but not as good as Germany and Belgium. So not too bad, but could do better. Uh, what's it all about? Well, Jetro very nicely puts its finger on the nub of the problem, which is this. This sentence says it all. The concept of subcontracting in the Japanese sense is not generally known in Western mm -hmm. Europe. In other words, in Japan, as you know, uh, there is a whole network of uh, companies. There's a very nice book in English which shows you all this for the Japanese motor industry, at, at any rate. Uh, these companies are really largely controlled. The subcontractors are, in fact, very much under the thumb of the companies that they supply, and there is intense competition. Let me tell you a nice little true story. I hope you haven't heard it before. Um, there is a good thing in the Department of Trade and, Trade and Industry called the Quality Education Branch, and a couple of years ago, they sent a mission to Japan and places in the Asian Pacific region to inquire about these things. And uh, most Japanese firms were extremely open, taking them round and explaining all the things about uh, procurement of components, uh, how the subcontractors have to check the quality of the things so that the main firms actually don't have to inspect them when they come in at all. Uh, how they have, coming back to the quality control idea indeed, uh, how they have got away from the acceptable quality level of measuring reject rates in percent and going over to what's called the PPM pro approach, the parts per million, where, so we're told, Japanese managers are almost happy if they find something wrong because it is so unusual it makes a change in their lives. But anyway, uh, having gone round the companies, the... British participants were at a party to thank the Japanese hosts at the end 
and one of them plucked up the courage to ask some questions which he hadn't felt like asking before, you see, and the question was this, um, what happens to you if your subcontractor doesn't deliver the parts on time? At first it was very difficult for the people to understand this question, so the question was rephrased, you see, he said, well, um, Okay, uh, what happens if the lorry breaks down? So apparently, according to the story, the answer to that was Japanese lorries don't break. So, okay, rephrase the question again, you see, sort of good old British persistence with the same point. Um, supposing there's an earthquake or a snowstorm, what happens then? A Japanese thought about this, and they said, there is always another supplier around the corner. So... Although there's no time to talk about it, I think we do also have to think quite seriously about another thing that the government, indeed, is often telling us about, uh, competitiveness, how to be more competitive. And in Japan, where you have a very large number, not only of main firms competing for the same sort of business, um, as we see, of course, spilling over to the UK in the electronics industry, but you also have a very large number of suppliers. And if one of them doesn't come up with the goods, well, sorry, that's the end of the story. Um, here I've got another nice little story about how they sold their soul to St. Michael. Uh, it's often seemed to me that Marks and Spencers actually is very like a Japanese company in many, way, many ways. And if you have ever heard Lord Seif expatiating about his philosophy of personnel management, or if you have read his article about, you know, how I see the personnel function, uh, if you close your eyes, it is really very like listening to Mr. Matsushita or Mr. Yoshida or somebody like that. And certainly, I think a thing that is highly relevant is this question of the subcontractors. Um, in fact, what they say here, it is absolutely applicable to the Japanese companies. It says here, Supplying Marks and Spencer may be a treadmill, but it's a lucrative one. In other words, there's very tight control, but if you're in and you come up with the goods, uh, then you get very nice rewards. Now, let me give you a couple of quick examples about how this has been done in the UK. Um, I found going around to a number of electronics companies that this is a thing that companies here monitor very closely. A couple of years ago I visited Sanyo and the first thing that I saw when I went into their sort of reception area was a big board like that and it said reject rates and I looked down it and um, the best one was the Teletext integrated circuits which was 0.45% which is not bad actually I don't think they thought it was very good but anyway by our standards it's not too bad and the thing that really made my hair stand on end was the corrugated cardboard cases, and the reject rate for that was no less than 27.5%. And I really couldn't imagine how anything could be quite as bad as that, let alone a sort of rather simple basic item, like a cardboard packing case for a television set. And again, it comes back to all this business of quality and care, management by detail. And we might say this again is an example of management by detail, I would say. And uh, according to the managing director, the reason for this uh, very bad reject rate was firstly that they didn't keep an eye in the factory on the machine making the corrugations. So some of the cases would arrive. From the outside, they looked okay. 
but inside actually the thing was flat. There were no proper corrugations, so therefore it was not safe, in fact, to pack televisions in it. And the other reason was, of course, uh, even a worse form of slackness, which was when the cases were delivered to Sanyo, uh, they would be chucked up on the back of a lorry, and uh, they didn't always bother very well about um, covering them with a tarpaulin. So you might get a sort of good old East Anglian downpour, and half the cases would be ruined and quite unusable. So that was the story there. Um, there have been some other really quite well-documented cases. Let me just mention two or three. Uh, one was National Panasonic. There was an article, it's about four years ago now, I suppose, um, written by a Japanese professor who was actually quite surprised um, to find that some of these Japanese ideas of circles and all the rest of it were really being accepted very well by the uh, local workforce in places like Wales. Uh, he was rather surprised, you know, because he thought, well, this is a special idea, and of course nobody else would accept it. And in fact, it was seen to be going down quite well. Um, Panasonic at that stage, when they were starting up, the managing director himself, not just the purchasing manager, although in a Japanese company I think the purchasing manager would be, from what I hear, a very important person indeed, uh, the managing director himself actually went round to a hundred possible suppliers, and of those hundred he chose, I think, about 33 and then, of course, they had all the business of making the demands and getting the performance. And, of course, the experience were, was mixed. Uh, some of the companies found, fell by the wayside. They couldn't keep up. Um, others improved. Others became sort of quite regular suppliers, as it might be with Marks and Spencers. And, of course, some others, when the Japanese company uh, offered them a contract, said, well... Uh, yes, it's a nice idea, but really, you know, uh, you are asking so much that we can't make any money on this, so, you know, we must decline it. So that was the experience of uh, Panasonic. Uh, Toshiba is a company which, obviously, I won't have time again to talk about in detail. Um, there's a very interesting sort of industrial relations and uh, organizational story at Toshiba, which I wanted to come on to in a moment. But it would be quite wrong, again, to see that out of context. And another thing that Toshiba has tried to do very much, and it's in fact one of their business aims that they announce, uh, is to try and get the right attitude and the right performance on the part of components suppliers. And one of the things that Geoffrey Deeth did, who was the managing director of Toshiba under the new system, uh, after Toshiba had taken over, after the dissolution of the not very satisfactory joint venture, was to hold a suppliers conference. And he told them exactly, you know, this is what we want. Uh, regular deliveries in these quantities, absolutely the right quantities, and specifications about quality. In return, we will pay you without quibbling on the nail. You won't be kept hanging around for your money, as can happen in the case of other companies. And it was the first time that they had done this, and... Uh, after he'd finished his talk, there was a sort of deathly silence, and he told me, he said, well, I was absolutely scared stiff. I thought, you know, that I'd completely blown it. And, in fact, while I was talking, um, one of the suppliers, for whom the whole idea was obviously too much, uh, had just got up and walked out, and Geoffrey said, he said, my God, 
perhaps all the others are going to do the same thing. And then, so I was tremendously relieved because after this awful pause at the end, one of them said, well, I think that's a good idea and, you know, we'll try and meet you halfway. And since then, they've had other suppliers' conferences and I think the thing has been going on uh, quite well. Uh, you might also have read, again, this was about three or four years ago, there was a very nice story in the Financial Times. Um, it was about a company which was called Kenya Plastics, which was making these, what they call, presentation parts for the fronts of television sets and things like that. And they had all sorts of technical problems and goodness knows what. And the title of the story, which I'm sure you will appreciate in the Financial Times, was We Didn't Know What Had Hit Us. Uh, they had never met anything like this before, the demands that were being put on them. And they mentioned all these little things about, you know, we learnt that when the Japanese companies wanted 500 components in a box, that it actually had to be 500, it couldn't be 499, it couldn't also be 502. And if by any chance it was 499, they would ring up and say, please send us one more by Red Star, we want that. Uh, and there was a, another very nice story in that. And I, in fact, uh, I met the person in Japan who was, in fact, a Toshiba manager. They'd had some uh, technical problem about the moldings. They weren't um, getting clean uh, things coming out of the moldings. And this chap, who was a senior engineering manager at Toshiba, uh, he actually, you know, took off his coat and he spent half the night, apparently, uh, working on the moulds at Kenya. And, of course, people were absolutely dumbfounded by this. They sort of, it's become a piece of uh, folklore. Uh, anyway, let's go on very briefly to the industrial relations thing. I think this has been talked about a great deal before. Again, if we come back to Jetro's report, uh, they put it quite plainly. You see, one of the major worries Japanese companies have about entering into local product production is labor management conflicts. In other words, how to deal with the labor unions, which differ fundamentally from their counterparts in Japan, and strikes, etc., etc. Uh, however, let me not be too gloomy, because there was another report a few years ago by some Japanese consultants, and they said, well, possibly, of course, uh, the situation in the UK had been outlined to them as being so filled with doom and gloom and has been so black and bad that the reality actually could not but be better. And so they were actually quite pleasantly surprised. They said, yes, you know, we would be quite happy to recommend other Japanese companies uh, to come here. It's not as bad as we thought. Uh, perhaps also some of our Japanese friends might be interested in knowing uh, what the British trade union movement thinks about Japanese companies. And this, again, is not bad either. Uh, this is actually some evidence given by the TUC to the House of Commons Employment Committee on the industrial relations practices of foreign-owned companies. Uh, I got it this year, and I think it was actually something quite recent, although it has no date on it. Um, Again, I don't think I have time to read it all out. If anybody's interested, um, I'd certainly be happy to show it to them. But it really basically says, well, first of all, Japanese companies have generally been prepared to recognize trade unions. Uh, it's important not to exaggerate what is often characterized as the unique Japanese approach to industrial relations. 
In general, there is not a wide divergence in levels of pay and benefits, and bargaining practice is often very similar to that in corresponding British firms. Uh, then it goes on to say about all these good things like single status, about consultation, communication, and all the things which, of course, the TUC likes. And then it says, uh, of course, the so-called no-strike agreements in companies like Hitachi, Toshiba, Sony, Nissan, and Sanyo have been widely seen as a significant development. So actually, the view that they have on here, which they gave quite independently to the House of Commons, uh, is really quite a positive one. Uh, I think I'm going to have to truncate this very, very quickly indeed. Uh, let me show you something, well, two things from Toshiba, which I think sum up quite a lot. Uh, this, I think, is rather good. This was an advertisement in one of the color magazines from Toshiba under the new system, emphasizing, of course, symbolically very strongly the idea of uh, collaboration, everybody working together. That is your sort of industrial relations uh, angle, if you like. Uh, actually, the Toshiba story, as I said, it's a very interesting one. You have all these things like the company advisory board. Uh, this is a form, if you like, of industrial democracy, if I dare use the expression. Uh, you have 11 people who meet once a month under the chairmanship, I think, of the personnel manager. When, it was, when he was there, it was done by Jeffrey Deeth, who was a managing director, who was really responsible for setting up this whole system. Uh, everybody is voting for people in their own constituency in the company. Uh, they all meet. They sit, of course, at a round table. Uh, they are entitled to discuss anything. Uh, as Jeffrey said, if they don't like the size of the managing director's car, they can even discuss that. Uh, but at the end of the day, of course, let's try and put it in um, uh, context. If we look at some of the harder things, before we get a bit too sort of idealistic about all these uh, nice things that have been going on, if I can find it... Um, this represents, again, in very graphic form, what Toshiba has been trying to do. In other words, you have the old system here. Uh, it speaks for itself. 62 models being produced in four factories by 2,600 people with seven unions. And this goes down to the one. You have eight models being produced by 300 people only, in one factory and with one union. Uh, who wouldn't like to do that if it was uh, humanly possible? So that, I think, is very much what it is about. Uh, if I can find the paper, it's quite interesting to look at uh, Toshiba's business aims. It's all very practical stuff. Uh, What are the business objectives of the company? To provide products for Toshiba European sales companies and independent dealers, A, of the right type, B, at the right time, C, at the right cost, D, at a high level of quality and reliability, E, which generates an acceptable level of profit for Toshiba consumer products. Uh, in summary, to generate the highest levels of profit in a consistent manner, without deviating from the high principles of Toshiba. So it is all quite good hard stuff. And there is something which I don't seem to have on this piece of paper 
about um, bringing the subcontractors and so on up to the mark. Uh, lots of interesting things that we could talk about there on the industrial relations side. Uh, also at Hitachi, where of course they faced a different task. Uh, Toshiba's advantage was that after they had dissolved the joint venture, they started again from absolutely nothing. So they could design a new system from the ground up and do, as Jeffrey Deeth always used to say, from day one exactly what they wanted to do. Uh, Hitachi, for various reasons, was not able to do that, and so you will have been reading uh, in the paper about the problems that uh, Hitachi had in moving from the old system to the new. Um, the electricians' union, of course, they have played a rather interesting and rather key role in this story. Uh, for some people in the TUC, they are, of course, the villains of the piece, followed by the engineers. Um, it is very interesting, actually. If you look at this, this is their rather shiny brochure. Again, for our Japanese friends, this might be rather interesting that a union in Britain will produce a nice shiny brochure like this. You can even get it from them in Japanese, not merely in English, but in Japanese. Uh, Mr. Roy Sanderson, their national officer, or one of the national officers, has visited organizations in Japan like the Osaka Chamber of Commerce, uh, to try and drum up business and membership for his union. Uh, this union is very forward-looking. It even runs a training college, of which there is a picture in here, I think, uh, for its members. And it's taken on board the sort of need of the high-technology industries and so on. You can tell that it is very unusual, because among the pictures that you will find in here, there is even a picture of Mr. Norman Tebbit. Uh, you won't find that in all union literature. Right, so let me come very briefly indeed uh, to the last point, which is the question of organizational change. Uh, I'm afraid I've had to skate very quickly over the surface of a lot of these things. Um, it seems to me that they do actually d give uh, quite a lot of hope that uh, things can actually be done. Uh, there are very big problems, I think, actually, in things like the relations between the uh, component makers and the main company. If we come back to the original point of quality circles, um, the, you tend to get a lot of discussion about these things like uh, X theory and Y theory. You know, people are basically bad and they've got to be kept in line, or basically people are good and they want to be fulfilled and have job satisfaction and be nice to them and let them realize their p potential and then your business too will prosper. It always slightly worries me because it seems to me that in a sense the Japanese, what they are doing, if I dare generalize for a moment, uh, what's actually happening with most of these things is actually X and Y at the same time. In other words, if you ask Japanese managers, you know, uh, do you think I don't know whether you do, but uh, if you ask them, you know, do you think people are basically good or bad, they would say, we think that they are good. But then you notice, actually, in their companies that they have very tight systems of discipline. And even in things like the pay system, uh, they have a thing which you don't normally have in Britain, which is an attendance allowance. In other words, every day that you come to work, you get the attendance allowance. And every day that you don't come, unless you're sort of dying for, of some terrible thing or something like that, 
you don't get it. It's as simple as that. So, okay, people are basically good, but uh, just to make doubly sure, as they say in Japan, you still have things built into the system, uh, just to make sure that they really do keep on being good. And I think it's actually quite interesting that if you look even at the academic literature, um, if you look at the way in which... Uh, McGregor's X and Y theories. Yes, Douglas McGregor, not Ian McGregor. Um, if you look at the way that people have rather unfortunately tended to take the X and Y theories in a rather sort of absolute and theoretical way, uh, McGregor himself was actually, I'm told, extremely unhappy. I remember reading this summer. He, he was very unhappy about this. But people rarely seem to be taking as a sort of what he saw as a monolithic set of principles or dogma something that he'd really tried to identify as being two rather general tendencies and two ideas that might actually be helpful to managers to think about things further rather than two sort of absolute givens that, uh, you know, you either had to follow the one or the other. Well, I think I've really gone on quite long enough, if not uh, too long already, so perhaps it would be a good idea to move on to the uh, discussion. Thank you. Uh, as I said, I've got a whole lot of nice quotes here, but uh, unfortunately no time to use them, I think. But maybe we can put them into something that is going to be written. For all information, please visit www.gresham.ac.uk.